want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us today. I want you to see that I brought my wacky socks today. My daughters bought these for me. Don't judge me because of my socks. This is one of my daughter's birthday, and uh, she gets to decide what socks I wear. But uh, the wacky socks today are about uh, an activity or an event that we're doing to help support uh, homeless in our community with some fresh socks, so I will not be recirculating those. Um, I'll give fresh ones to that, but I uh, want to encourage you in October to participate in Socktober. All right, commercial over. Now I want to transition to this morning's message. I want to encourage you this morning. I want to give you a little, little secret. I want to let you in on a little secret, and that is when you go to your favorite restaurant and they give you that giant bowl of chips at the beginning, or you sit at your table and there's a bowl of pretzels that you can like literally see the salt that's on it, uh, or the uh, experience that many of us have when we go into the movie theater and you buy the five-gallon container of, of popcorn, anyone? Uh, the one with the free refills, you guys know what I'm talking about, that they are delighted when you do that, right? When you eat those things. The reason why is because salt naturally makes us desire to want something else, right? That's why they can sell us a $12 bottle of water, right? It, that it, that they, they recognize that it turns up something inside of us, longing for something more. This morning, as we talk about the privilege we have of representing the love of Christ, to be people who, we're going to see this in the text today, and I love it. Uh, we're going to get to see a description in God's word that says that you and I have the privilege of living the gospel. And I admit, this has been a challenging concept for me to, to understand because there, there are statements in scripture that are challenges to us. And this one, it says to live worthy of the gospel. And I, I, wa I want to recognize that your and my privilege is to be salty in a world that's around us that desperately needs the hope of, of God's love. And, and so this, this passage comes to mind, and I want you to see what may be a familiar passage for many of us, that God describes you and I, as those of us who are believers, as the salt of the earth. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll skip ahead. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light show shine before others so that they may see your good works and to give glory to your father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying to us, you and I ought to make people thirsty for more of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. That they ought to look at the way we live and they ought to say, I want that in my life. And I want to celebrate as we're studying God's word together in this series that's focusing in on joy, that you and I want to be people who show that we have been forgiven and set free. We want to be people that show that we've experienced and tasted the Lord of joy or experienced the, the joy of the Lord, that we have been people who've changed in our life. And, and today, as we study God's word together, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 1, as we've been studying this fantastic passage of scripture, is going to remind his church friends in Philippi that, that actually circumstances that are difficult, even when there's persecution associated with being, uh, being public about your faith, that that is actually something that ought to be an encouragement to you because you're joining in what the Lord did on your behalf. That, that you continue to get to be salt in a world that desperately needs it. But what the solution or the answer to their needs is 
the fact that the Lord has provided for them their deepest, most significant needs in their life. So the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We'll pick up in verse 27. It says this. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I might hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I want to see when I visit you, Paul says. Remember, he's in chains at this point. But he's saying, I want to see when I'm free and I get to visit you that you're actually living out the faith that you've professed that you have. That it has changed your life. And he says and that you're not frightened in anything by your opponents. And he's warning us, there will be opponents. And this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. In other words, they're on the wrong team, the wrong side. But of your salvation and, a clear, um, and of God, from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you ought to suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now here I still have. He's saying to them that, that I expect that this thing that you talk about as being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that it changes your life. That it impacts your life in such a way that you choose to include other people in that process. And I, I've been asking myself this question when I read this statement, be worthy of the gospel that for me, I've had to wrestle with what's that mean? That's a, an interesting phrase. We know in scripture, it talks at other times about being worthy of your calling in Ephesians 4, worthy of the Lord in first, or Colossians 1, to live worthy of God. But in this statement, it's saying be worthy of the gospel. And I think that part of that means that we allow that our lives have been so impacted by what God's done that we are willing and able to be able to witness or testify to what God's done on our behalf. Um, some of you, uh, no doubt, if you've ever filled out a survey after you've bought something or experienced, they, they will often ask the question, would you recommend this product or our store to a friend? How many of you have done that? You've checked off some survey that has that. There's a reason why we get asked that question, and it actually goes back to a study that was done about 20 years ago. And um, it was in the Harvard Business Review, and there were multiple studies that, that basically said that if a person has been positively impacted by something, and they are willing to recommend it to a friend, um, they're willing to put their reputation on the line when they say this, but that also in the business world means that that business will more than likely grow. So they really want you to say, yes, I am willing to recommend this to a friend. And here we see Paul basically saying, I want your life to be so positively impacted by the gospel that I want you to do everything you can to allow others to be drawn to, not you, that's really important, you're not the thing that they are attempting to be drawn to, but instead that you're drawing to them to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they get to see his loving kindness, they get to experience the joy of the Lord that he offers to them. And I just love that description. Here's the threat or the danger that we see in this passage as well. And that is, it is possible for us to actually turn people away from the gospel. 
that the way that we live our lives, the decisions that we make, I, I had this experience this last week, actually, in my office. It was a little bit more of a business meeting, but there was a man who I did not know that came in to meet with me. And uh, right from the beginning, he was clear to express, I don't share the same faith that you do. And it wasn't inappropriate. It was just blunt. He said, I, I'm not a, a Christian, but I have a question for you, pastor, before we talk about business. And then he proceeded to say, I don't understand why the people who I encounter, so many of the people that I encounter that call themselves Christians are actually hateful people. That was his word. And I, and I was taken aback by it because he was saying that he has heard people who've identified with Christ. He is saying he is not a believer in Christ. And yet he is saying some of the actions that they've had. He went on to say, when I study in the Bible, the, the Christ that I see in God's word, I don't see that mesh up with the actions of those people. Now, now, am I saying that he was like, yeah, I, like I, I piled on, man, you are so right. Those Christians, they're jerks. No, I didn't. But I actually said, that has not been my experience. But I'm heartbroken to hear that that's been your experience. I, I actually asked him, do you want to come hang out with people that I know? But, but, I, but I want us to be honest, though. If it's not us, there are some people that we have been around that have used the name of Christ in such a way that it is not drawing outsiders into an intimate, personal relationship with the hope that we have but instead, we've actually done things that might push those people away. I think that for some of us, there's a, a, a very important theological concept when we talk about the gospel. The gospel is based upon grace, and the order of the gospel is very significant. So when we say we're going to live up to the gospel of Christ, I want us to think about that question. What, is, what does the gospel really mean to us? What is it that the gospel is? Did I earn it? Was it something that I did where I, uh, when I, when I came around the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I was around people who are believers, and then I realized I have to look and act just like those people before I receive and accept the love of Christ? Actually, that is not how it works, right? That the theological term sanctification is an important one, and it means that we become more like Jesus after the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And for some of us, I believe one of the more repelling things that we do with people who aren't Christ followers yet is we just assume that they're going to act like Christ followers because they showed up in church. Or we're going to assume that they're going to act like Christ followers because we've, um, we've been around them or because they're familiar with the message of the gospel. And I'll just remind you that it is God's loving kindness that leads us to righteousness. But even the Apostle Paul, here he is, a guy who is literally attacking and persecuting Christians. He was on the wrong team. But at some point, he received and accepted the love of Christ in such a way. And I love that, that we get this context that, that here he's chained to soldiers that are um, together with him. And, and I'm guessing as he's chained, can you imagine if the Apostle Paul was like the, the cussing police? You know, like, like he's, he's chained to the, oh, you did it again. You know, oh, that's inappropriate. I can't believe you said that. No, actually, the Apostle Paul in his interaction with them, cared more about their soul. And he recognized something that's true in his own life. And that was, God didn't clean everything up in his life before he became a believer. You guys tracking with me? 
But instead, what ended up happening was that when he became a believer, the Holy Spirit started to work inside of him to allow him to look more like Christ. And so I want to celebrate that when it comes to the gospel, that the gospel is not just an idea, but it is an incredible gift. It is a message of hope. It is the recognition that God did this incredible thing on our behalf. It is truly the best news that we could possibly receive. And I think the way it's described here in the text in verse 27 is that it is life. It's a lifestyle for us. And so when Paul says, only let your manner of life, the way you live, your lifestyle, let your lifestyle be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That term worthy is an important concept. And, um, you know, anyone who's ever sat on an old school scale understands that there's weights that are calendar balancing the weight that is on the scale. And for some of us, as we kind of click it over, we're trying to get it to balance out. Or if you think of the scales of justice, right? That there's one thing on one side. And the description here of being worthy is that on one side is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other side is how you and I choose to live our day in and day out lives. And he's saying, I want you to live your life as if that incredible price has been paid for you. I want you to live your life as if you've been forgiven and set free. I want you to live your life as if God has done these incredible things for you. And when you do, you respond in a mode of worship and gratitude and witness and testimony of what God's done on your behalf. And I'm, so I'm going to ask you the question, and I'm going to encourage you to take notes on this. And that is for those of you who are Christ followers, like me, that you've placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to write down the things that that means for you. What does that mean for you? It means that my sins are no longer my sins alone, but that God has died so that I do not have to, that I get to be moved on from death to life. I, I want to think of some more. Here's just, I'll share with you my notes that I took me about three minutes to write these out because it was so much fun for me to think about the work of the gospel. I, I think the gospel turns the dead to life. It gives hope to the hopeless. It gives rest to those who are weary. The gospel gives joy to the brokenhearted. The gospel sets captives free. The gospel teaches us how to live. Can I hear like, amen, are you guys out there? <laughs> you know, so, so that's my list. That's like my quick list, right? I hope you have your own. I hope you're able to write your own version of this, of this is, this is what the gospel means to me. And so when we talk about Paul's phrase here, he's actually the first giving us the first command in the book of Philippians after he's encouraged them and thanked God for them and said, I love you guys. Now he's saying to them, this is what I expect from you. And they are going to do it in a culture. When they share the gospel, they're going to do it in a culture that doesn't want the message of the gospel. They're going to do it in a place that's not really excited to hear the message that they want to share. That they are not going to clap for them because they are so wise and profound. In fact, some of those guards that the Apostle Paul shared the gospel to, I'm sure we're not like, wow, you're so smart. In fact, I'm guessing that for some of them, they were antagonistic, they were angry, they were discouraged, they were bitter. But what the Apostle Paul says is, my job as a Christ follower is to live in such a way that people see the gospel in my life. It's applied. I like the way A.W. Tozer describes this. He calls this the crucified life. And I think that that's a helpful description. And I'll just remind you, 
those of us who've been impacted positively by something, it ought to lead us to be people who are willing to articulate it and share it with others. Uh, some of the language of this section of scripture has more military terms to it, stand firm and stand together. And there's these descriptions in the text that I think help us to kind of envision him using kind of military language, which makes sense as he's chained to a guard. But I, I, I recently have reread a book um, that I appreciated by Stephen E. Ambrose. And Stephen, this is not a Christian book in any way. The title of it is Band of Brothers. And some of you may be familiar with the miniseries that was associated with it. But at the end of that book, um, some of you know the story of it, that it was a, um, a, a description of Easy Company, the 2nd Battalion of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division that um, would, have, would have jumped out of planes into Normandy. And it follows their training preparation and then also their experiences throughout World War II up until the end of World War II. And uh, it's an incredible story of um, brotherhood and challenges and discouragements. And uh, one of the, the amazing things, I read the book um, several years ago and then I reread it. And there's this appendix that's at the end that just tells you what happened with the guys that you heard by name in the book. And um, there was one chapter or one description that really stuck with me, and I want you to hear this. It is referencing one of the guys that was, was um, historically talked about in the book, and he goes by the name Skinny Sisk. Uh, Sergeant Skinny Sisk had written his uh, captain, Winters, um, a note, and it said this about his difficult time that he had shaking his wartime memories in July of 1991. He wrote to his captain, he says, my career after the war was trying to actually just drink away the truckload of Germans that I stopped in the war. I was trying to drink away the experiences that I had fighting the Nazis and the, that one terrible experience that they both shared together. And he said, as I wrestled through these things, the killings that I did, they would um, jumped back into bed with me and my mind, and they plagued my mind. And he said, I had a lot of flashbacks after the war, and I started drinking. And then he, he tells this story. This is in the, in the back of the book, just the appendix. It says, then my sister's little daughter, four years old, came into my bedroom. And I admit that I was too unbearable for the rest of the family, either to hang, uh, either because I was hungover or I was perpetually drunk. And my, my sister's daughter, four years old, came into the room and she told me that Jesus loved me, that she loved me. And if I would repent, God would forgive me of all of the men I kept trying to kill all over and over again. That little girl, she got to me and I put her out of my room and I told her to go get her mom. And there and then I bowed my head on my mother's old fashioned bed and I repented and God forgave me for the war and all the things that bad things I'd done through the years. And then he goes on to describe that he was ordained and he moved into the ministry. And I'm just reading this. I'm like, this is awesome. This is incredible. But, but it was this little girl, four years old, that, that God used to express his loving kindness to this man who was experiencing terrible pain. And I just want to challenge you. I want to, um, those of you who say that you're not smart enough, you're not experienced enough, you don't have enough context to share the gospel. Hey, there's a four-year-old girl 
that articulated the gospel in such a way that it changed her uncle's heartbroken life to go from death to life. And he goes on to share um, about his story and, and he moved into ministry. It's awesome, right? So, so here what he's doing is he's just simply articulating, I went from death to life. And I'm so grateful that someone saw that kindness or saw me as a potential person to be able to share that gospel with. And I'll just challenge you, each and every one of us that have a faith in Christ, someone loved us enough to be willing to share it with us. Someone chose not to judge us on the cover or to decide there's no way that alcoholic, broken-hearted, discouraged man could ever come to Christ. Actually, no. The gospel is bigger than that, right? The gospel can handle the most broken of situations. And so uh, I encourage you to recognize the fact that the gospel can be a lifestyle of ours. Even if we're four years old, the gospel can be a lifestyle. The second point this morning is that sharing the gospel can be a team effort. I think that's what God desires of us, that he desires for us to be brothers and sisters on this journey, standing firm together is the way it's described in this common mission that we have. And I think when we get the privilege of doing this together, that it increases our joy. I love the way it describes this in verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life, your lifestyle, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear that you are standing firm together in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this is where I see um, joy coming through this and not frightened in anything by your opponents. I think it is possible for us to stand strong together. Some of you um, recognize that that's a part of the blessing of being a Christ follower. That's a part of the joy. Uh, I think it's about a hundred of you are participating in a discovery group together right now. And I'm celebrating that because there's a part of that, that one of the things that I keep hearing from those who are participating in it is, uh, I'm enjoying the privilege of collaborating together and hearing people go through the same things that I'm going through. And in some ways, part of what we experience when we join in burden-bearing fellowship together is that we get to bear the load and burden of life together. I think this is through the power of the Holy Spirit that empowers us. We see that in the text as it describes in one spirit. There's a unity that comes when we do this together. And I think that we also get to gain momentum from one another. I, um, people who are smarter than me have made the observation that those geese that we see flying south for the winter, that there is a reason why they fly in that V formation, that, that through the, the work process as one flies down and then the upward draft is pushed up, that it actually um, diminishes the amount of effort and work that is required by them. And I think as Christ followers, we get to experience something similar when we strive side by side. I'll be specific in my own life. There are times when other people have the privilege. I heard this last week after the first service that, you know, somebody comes up to me and they're sharing the places where they've shared the gospel, where they've seen people who've said to them, I want nothing um, to do with what you're saying. And then there's been other people who've said, thank you for sharing this. This is meaningful for me. I'll continue to wrestle with this. And as I hear their story, both the struggles and the victories, I myself am encouraged, encouraged in that process. And so 
I want to encourage you that there is potential for us to gain momentum together when we strive side by side as the text describes it. And I think there's safety that comes in numbers. I think that we can recognize that we don't all do the same thing in evangelism or in witnessing. And uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. It says this, I, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is particularly anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I will share with you that the times that I have had the most success in sharing the gospel with someone, it is almost always because other people have functioned as Christ followers around them. That other people have loved them sacrificially. Other people around them have lived the gospel at school or in other settings. They've had teachers who are believers that were generous and kind and shared. And so there's something about this community of gospel living that allows us to get the privilege of having some of us experience fruit that flows out of it. I think the privilege we have, as Matthew 13 describes it, is to be people who sow the seed, that we put it out there and we allow the privilege of watching what God's going to do on our behalf. So um, we, we see this in the text as well, the third point this morning, and that is opposition to the gospel uh, for those who are living correctly, for those who are being honest about the gospel and sharing it, even if they're doing it the right way opposition to the gospel is inevitable. And I'm going to challenge you to not be somebody who contributes to opposition to the gospel. The Apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, don't be frightened in everything or in anything by your opponents. That term opponents, it sounds like they're on the other team. They're fighting against us, that there's a spiritual battle that's going on. That when we're bold about sharing the gospel with our friends and family and coworkers and People, they don't always say, man, that's amazing. You are so smart. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. In fact, often there are times when people reject us. He describes this as opponents here. And then he goes on to say something that for those of us who are trying to live this way, that, that this should be something that's very encouraging. For those of us who uh, I'm afraid that there might be some of us uh, in, our, in this context of our churches is that there are people who, like here he's saying, if you are associating with Christ, there are going to be people who accuse you. You're guilty by associating with Christ boldly. I also think that there are some people who are not experiencing persecution or accusation or frustration because of their faith or their outspoken faith because they're not associating with Christ. Paul described it as being ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so, so when I read this, I think he's saying, if you're doing it right, there's going to be people who, um, who are opposed to it. And he goes on to say, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, remember Christ sacrificed more, experienced more suffering than any of us, um, that you'd not, you should not only believe in him, but you should suffer for his sake. Think that this description is very helpful for me to understand. If I'm doing this right, there will inevitably be people who look at me and who have questions about um, but what's, what's really happening. They'll, they'll have questions about, am I 
truly trying to help them or potentially feel like I'm attacking them or um, they can maybe misunderstand the specifics of my faith. And here Paul is describing this as agonizing together because there's those who choose to oppose us. And I'll just gently remind you, real believers will experience real opposition. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, he says, you will be hated on all account of my name. In verse 18 of John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Uh, that's, that's challenging, isn't it? But, but he's saying that I suffered this way. He says this in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, you will also keep yours. But these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know God. They don't know the truth. They don't know it yet. And so this phrase about being guilty by association, I just want to challenge you. Do you have people who are frustrated with the way that you communicate to the gospel with them? But let me make sure that we're careful here. There are things that we can do, especially if we're not living the gospel in an authentic way, that can actually repel people from the gospel. I uh, had a, a, a great family reunion with my mom's side of the family yesterday in Dayton. And, and one of my family members, whom I love, uh, expressed to me some sadness, kind of like the guy uh, that met with me in my office this last week about experiences that he had had with Christ followers. And he knew I was a pastor and he's expressing these hurts from people who have disappointed him. And most of the things that he talked about was that people were talking one way about their faith, and then living an incredibly different way about their lifestyle. And I'll just tell you, that is not associating with Christ, right? That is actually rejecting the message of Christ in our life. It needs to be lived in our lifestyle. And so here, when he's saying that there are people who are persecuted, he's saying they're persecuted because of their righteousness. And I, I don't want to recognize that people who experience that, I've had the privilege of, of being around people who've experienced persecution because of their faith. And I like the way Matthew Slick describes this. He says, many Christians in the West believe Christians in persecuted areas would have us to pray for the end of their persecution. But actually the opposite is true. Christians living and dying in areas where authentic persecution is commonplace would rather that Western Christians pray the persecuted church would suffer well and in that process bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're going to be chained. You're going to experience challenging experiences. But in that process, the prayer is that you walk worthy of the privilege of suffering. Now, that's, that's different than the person who, I love the way Francis Chan puts this. Some of you have read or watched Francis Chan, and um, he's a good Bible teacher, but he has a great illustration that I appreciate. Can you imagine a Olympic gymnast, maybe like on the balance beam, um, that, that um, at an event, that maybe the Olympics or something like that, they, they go up to the balance beam, and they don't even get up on the balance beam, but then afterwards they do the like, you know, I did it, right? 
You guys, do you like that? I practiced that for you, just for you. You guys know what I'm talking about, though, right? I, I did a terrible job. In fact, after the first service, somebody scolded me for my form, believe it or not. You know? but, but, but his, he's saying, can you imagine if you did nothing and then you say, like, hey, you should be clapping for me. Right? I, I did it. Uh, it's silly, right? It doesn't make any sense. And what Francis is challenging us, I think, is what the Apostle Paul is challenging us is if you are suffering because of your own sinful decision, Peter talks about this, like that's, that's a different kind of suffering. If you're suffering because you're living for the gospel, then, then there are rewards and God's benefits and he's, we're, we're doing this together. But he's contrasting those things. And so if you have opposition in your life, it is not necessarily a sign that you are being disobedient. If you have family members that don't understand why you have to bring up the gospel with them, if you have children that are wrestling with your emphasis and care for them spiritually, if you have parents, if you have coworkers, if you, have, if you, have, if you don't have people in your life that are questioning the way that you're representing Christ, if you're doing it out of sincerity, and in such a way that Colossians 4 describes it as seasoned with salt, then I'm going to encourage you that you may not be guilty by association because you're choosing to ignore associating with Christ. I want to celebrate when we talk about the gospel that the news is good. That's what the gospel means. And it should be something that we choose to live in such a way that we live with joy. When he says, not frightened in anything, I think he's saying, as Christ followers, we keep saying it in this series, we can live above our circumstances. I love my one friend, uh, we were talking on the phone about this sermon series this week, and he said to me, you know what, one of my goals in my life is to have my Mondays be better than most people's Christmases. I like that phrase. He, he's saying, I want to have my mundane, normal life be better than, because of the fact that I experience and live out the joy of the Lord. What, what is sad to me is that there are some people in the name of Christ that don't represent the joy of the Lord, or as we studied last week, Johnny Erickson kind of describes Jesus as the Lord of joy. And I, I love the way that Charles Spurgeon says this. This is, this is funny. I paraphrase uh, a writing of his, but he says, many Christians live the opposite of joy. They have bad temper, snapping off people's heads, making, um, picking unnecessary fights. Um, all this is quite contrary to the gospel. There are some people who seem to have been suckled upon vinegar. I think that's funny. You, you can almost picture the look on their face, right? They're, they see themselves to burn with fire. I may say to them that the best of them is sharper than a hedge of nasty thorns. Ow! Dear friends, let it never be so with us. Be firm, be bold, be fearless, but be gentle and cautious. If you have a lion's heart, have a kind heart, so that you would let there be such a gentleness about your presence that little children may not be afraid to come up to you. You know what he's describing there? He's describing the way the Lord Jesus asked, acted. He said, may it be that the bartender, the prostitute, may not be driven away by your hostility, but invited to goodness by the gentleness of your words and your acts. I love that description. Stop being so somber and misunderstanding that it's good news 
and live in such a way that the gospel is worth dying for. If the gospel is worth dying for, it ought to be something that's worth living for. And I think that the description here of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is what the Apostle Paul was living out. I think it's what Jesus lived out when he encountered people like Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector. And Jesus was so winsome that he drew individuals, some of which who were rejected culturally or had no, we, the assumption would be they'd have no interest in spiritual things. And yet the Lord Jesus cut across those things. And so I want to challenge us as we attempt to apply this truth to not reject people is to remind you that the gospel is bigger than, I can keep saying this, the gospel is greater than. And for some of us, we look at people, especially people we know, and we say, there's no way that the gospel could save that person. There's no way that person would ever receive the love of Christ. And I'll just challenge you, the gospel's greater than, it's bigger than, uh, it was big enough to handle my sin. And if it's big enough to handle mine, it's big enough to handle anyone's sin. And I think that should lead us to be people who strive with love, who strive with patience and expectation, remembering the order of sanctification, that it comes after the act of salvation. I think that's important. I think it's also important to understand that the gospel is truth and your and my lives should have noticeable integrity. In other words, what we say we believe it ought to be lived out in our lifestyle. And if the gospel doesn't change us for the better, then why should other people outside of us want that gospel? I think it's important that we're willing to be people who give up at times our comfort, our preferences for the sake of other people's faith or their salvation. I think that's what Jesus modeled for us perfectly. And so when I, when I look at that question, why do so many Christians live with so much hate, that question that that man asked me, I'm afraid that, that there was a misunderstanding of what unifies Christ followers. I think there's a misunderstanding there about what it is that we ought to be aligning ourselves together with when it comes to the message of the gospel. When Paul talks about collaborating together or standing firm together, he is talking about a standing firm in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that is the thing that we are willing to die for. One of the fears that I have culturally today is that I think that there are other things that we take as as important as the gospel and we imply that those are the things that ought to unify us. And I, and I see it happen in the church context often. Some of you um, poke and prod in my life to try to see what I believe about certain stances politically or things that are happening culturally. And, and there's a desire to make sure that we all agree or unified. And I'll just say this to you, and I want to say this vulnerably, is that I am still struggling with trying to daily represent the love of Christ in my life every day. And that is the priority for me. Now, some of these other things are important and valuable, but we do not have to align on all of those things in order for us to be moving forward for the sake of the gospel. And so in this understanding of the unity or even what I believe and understand to be the fuel that ought to fuel us on to love and good deeds or to be willing to represent the love of Christ, it's not that we agree on everything, but instead that we've chosen to make the most important thing the thing that we aspire to serve. And the gospel in this time period when Paul was communicating this mess, they were messed up in that culture. 
They were worshiping leaders. Um, they were worshiping pleasure. There was all kinds of idolatry in the culture that was around them. And the Apostle Paul's message to his believers was to keep the main thing the main thing. And I say that vulnerably because I want to recognize that there are challenges in our society, but I want to recognize that the most important thing, the thing we ought to be willing to die for is the message of the love of Christ and the grace that he offers each person around us. That's worth dying for. Other things, I'm afraid, can potentially become a distraction. Let me just share with you what I think the deceiver wants. So some of this is Paul saying, as a loving father, this is what I want to see in those who I've spiritually invested in. That's, that's Paul's encouragement to them, that you suffer together, that you represent the love of Christ, that you understand the joy of the Lord. But I think what the deceiver wants, what Satan wants is he wants us to be distracted. He wants to ignore our important mission and to have apathy towards the mission uh, because of the fact that we care about other things more significantly. I think he wants to diminish the spiritual reality of the conflict. And here, I, I see this as a spiritual battle. I think he wants us to not experience the unity that's described in this text, standing firm together with one mission ahead of us. That's what he's telling us that he aspires for us to have. And Satan, I believe, wants us to be divided I think he wants us to fight for things that are our rights or our preferences or our choices in such a way that we neglect what is most essential. And then I think probably the most tempting thing is he wants us to disengage from the conflict, to retreat and to step back away from it and say that's someone else's responsibility. Aren't you glad that that four-year-old girl loved her, her, grand, or her uncle so much that she was willing to share the gospel with him? Uh, aren't you glad that the people who shared the gospel with you chose to do it in a way that you understood it? I think that's what it means for us. So the deceiver wants us to ignore, to, to, to be discouraged, to have divisions, to diminish the spiritual reality, and to be distracted. And I think the Lord, in this passage of Scripture, is reminding us that he wants us to just live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. To, to live up to the gospel in our life, regardless of our age or our experience, that he wants us to live it out. And so I have two questions for you as we apply this truth in our life. The first one is, how is it that we can live this, this life that we live in such a way that it makes others want more of Christ in, our, in their life? How, how is it that we can live our life in such a way that others see as we've used that concept of saltiness, that they, they long for something more, especially the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I think there's an authenticity with that. There's a vulnerability with that. There's a willingness to share our story with those people. And I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to challenge you to commit to praying for opportunities to share the gospel. We're going to start doing uh, in-between services on Sunday mornings. There's going to be a group that meets together in room one, and uh, I, you'll see the slides for it, but it's, I think it's going to start next week, but it, the goal of it is just to pray for our neighbors, to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. It's not a judgment thing where we are coming to condemn people, but instead it's just to say, give us opportunities to share the gospel. I want to encourage you um, to, to consider being a part of that. And then the second question uh, that I think is helpful for us to apply this truth is to ask Ourself, the sincere question, what is it that I can do in my life that might push others away from the love of Christ, that may misrepresent his loving kindness, may 
uh, may not always model for those who are around me what it would have been like to be around the Lord Jesus Christ. I think those are good questions for us, and I want to encourage you. I want to celebrate with you that those of us who've experienced the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's our privilege to represent that to a world that's around us. If you haven't experienced that yet in your own life, I want to encourage you that, that the Lord believes that you're worth it. The Lord chose to send his son to seek and to save that which was lost. And that prayer that I prayed and read in Ephesians uh, at the beginning of this message before communion, that that could be your story, that it's not because you've earned it, but because of his grace that he's forgiven you and set you free. And I'm going to invite you now to join me. We're going to um, receive tithes and offerings. We're going to also close our time in worship and let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We thank you and praise you for this morning, and I thank you for your word that promises us that it will not return void. I pray that as we close our time out in worship and response to you and to uh, give back to you with our tithes and offerings, we pray, Lord, that you would receive these in the spirit that's worthy of you, that you'd be honored and glorified in this place. And I, I thank you, Lord, for what you've done on our behalf, that we get to celebrate what you've given us and I think it's appropriate for us to say to those of us who've been given much, it is our privilege and expectation that we are willing to give that to others. That's my understanding of what you're teaching us when it comes to being people who live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. I pray that you would convict us in the areas that we need convicted in. I pray that you'd encourage those who are suffering in this room or frustrated because they may have been misunderstood uh, by people who don't know you yet. And I just pray for miraculous, ongoing reminders of the desire of your heart for people to come to know you through our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. We love you. We thank you and praise you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.